Welcome to Train Rush, your Elon Musk of train game podcasts, at times brilliant, but more often meandering, wild and confusing. Today, brought to you by Cray Taylor and guess who? Joe Reese. Thank you for joining me today. It was a touch and go there. Could have been someone else. It could have been. No, I'm back for another one. Just one. No more commitment than one. This is the last one. I'll see how I feel by the end of this. You've dragged me back. Are you doing a Sean Connery on it? Are you increasing the amount of money you're owed? Is this going to be your uh, Diamonds of Forever money? Well, how much did he earn from that? Uh, 1.4 million, something like that. Something ridiculous, like 12 million in today's money. Did he film from Russia with Love? Was that him? Was from Russia with Love, Connery? I don't think so. It would have been a great segue, but we're going to thank Sean Connery for the fact that he made the Bond franchise so successful that from Russia with Love came to exist as a uh, as a film. 1963 from Russia With Love starring Sean Connery as James Bond. Oh, we've got to redo that whole bit. Do we? No one's here for the Bond. We're here for the Bonds, Joe, you see? See oh, what I did there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good, good, good. Very clever. I know, it's excellent. Today, we are not here to talk about an 18xx, so if you're here to listen to that, turn off now. How about Sean Connery? No, no. We're here to talk about 18xx's little brother, although that's considered to be an awful attack on the genre by many. We are here today to talk about a Cube Rouse title, specifically, as if we haven't foreshadowed it enough, Tom Russell's Trans-Siberian Railroad. It is a 2015 Winsome, came in the 2015 Winsome set, unsurprisingly, and is being released this year, we hope, by Rio Grande in its first commercial offering. The art's by Todd Sanders, if you care for that sort of thing. To Joe, it's all just cubes, lines and noise. And it will be available in all good retail outlets as soon as they finish repacking the 15th correction to whatever thing was typoed or misspelt or mislocated. Uh, yeah, they had a bit of a problem with the Russian. We've got a red company and a blue company and a yellow company and a green company. What are they named? They're called Red yellow blue green <laughs> but in in russian of course but i think the russian was misspelt and i think there are a few other things that they wanted to improve so if only a few million people spoke russian and you could write it by them dying language i hear and so why did we decide to cover this one joe what, what was the what was the raison d'etre or the raison gamer for this i hadn't really thought about that well, I heard it was somewhat challenging in the sense that a lot of Tom Russell games tend to be where they're not immediately obvious how to play them well, but they normally package interesting ideas. Yeah, sure. The, the interesting ideas in this game are potential for company takeovers, co-presidency collaboration or derailment, shuffling capital between companies, the pressure of nationalisation, and players being able to weigh down and encourage nationalisation. I could throw around some words, I guess. Opaque, brittle, maybe a bit strange and unexpected, maybe. Indeed, like being asked a question you weren't prepared for on a podcast, Joe. Um, <laughs> and I've got a bit of a potted history with Tom's games. Some I love, like Forex. Some that haven't worked quite so well for me, but I still appreciate as a design. Specifically, that's the Sioux line. And I figured, let's play a best out of three. That was my attitude coming in. Let's see if this weird Tom Russell game would be the one that sells me on Tom Russell games. And you say best out of three, is this the final, the third game you're playing and then that's it? No, no, no. We just adjust it to a best out of seven if it doesn't land the right way, Joe. That's that's <laughs> what you do. Well, best out of five, I believe, is the interim measure. You have played Northern Pacific, though, haven't you? Oh, maybe this is the best out of five, then. Maybe maybe Tom won the best out of three, and now we're just going to the best out of five. Milk it for more money. Sorry, episodes, whatever. Let's talk to Tom Russell. What 
titles have you experienced to anchor you in Tom's body of work, Joe? Um, let's see. Northern Pacific, Irish Gauge, Absolutely Aces, uh, Jewel Gauge, Forex, maybe something else. You played a Sioux line, right? I remember you talking about it when you got your copy and you were enjoying it thoroughly. Yeah, the Sioux line. And I've played um, Westphalia. And I have supply lines, but I've yet to play that. So, uh, farewell breadth of Tom's intellectual progeny, so to speak. You've uh, got your filthy fingers on. (laughs) Yeah, that's what they say. Roman hands and Russian fingers. So, Craig, what keeps drawing us back to Tom's games? It's a good question, because every time we look to cover one of Tom's games for the show, there's always a degree of trepidation on my part. Yet, in the same breath, there's always a siren's call of... This could be interesting. This could be the thing that nestles in my brain and makes me think all night about some strange or wonderful mechanism. Whether it lands well with you or whether it lands poorly with you, an effort will have been made to provide an experience that doesn't have many parallels. Perhaps except maybe towards if you make comparisons to her own work. Well, you know, there's some things where there's evolutions, like this guilty land leads into the vote. And you could argue there's some evolutions inside the rail designs for Tom Russell. But what you're not going to get is a generic anything. There's a genuine effort there to make the experience meaningfully different. Yeah, I think Tom's games and a lot of the games that we really enjoy playing, probably what you'd call unstable, maybe, or fragile, sometimes brittle and opaque. And just quickly, just, I, I don't know, should we give a definition to those things? Or what, what do we actually mean by those things? By opaque, I would say you might know the goal of the game, but the path to get to that goal is not always clear. And I'd say that the strategy is maybe clouded by mechanisms that are attached to multiple gears. So if you pull a lever, you're not necessarily knowing what you're turning or how or how it's going to affect the game state. The essence of opacity is the relationship between player input and game output is non-obvious. I mean, that's probably a very, very reduced, pure definition, possibly to the point of being useless, but <laughs> th- that's the definition I'm going to work with. Yeah, I think we're saying the same kind of thing, except I'm probably using more words than I need to. I see it as maybe having a brick wall in front of you and you're throwing things over the brick wall and maybe you'll hit something and make someone scream or maybe you'll smash a window. Your actions and the effects aren't necessarily visible, especially in those first few plays. Sure, it takes some nuance to read. When you hear the clatter, you realise you've landed it in a shopping trolley, but when you hear the glass smashed, then you've probably landed it in someone's allotment greenhouse, that kind of thing. But it takes some time to be able to differentiate the tinkling of glass and the (laughs) clattering of shopping trolleys. Yeah, and what gives you endgame scores? Is it throwing it into the the greenhouse or is it throwing it into the shopping trolley? You, You might not know at the beginning of the game. The greenhouse, obviously, don't be stupid. <laughs> Talking about fragile and brittle greenhouses and maybe shopping trolleys on wheels, what do you think is an unstable or a fragile or a brittle game? For me, an unstable game or a fragile game is something where the game state can kind of rock to unexpected outcomes or maybe through player interaction 
where you don't know necessarily how other players will affect the game state, or you may win through actions or inactions of others, or you might be able to manipulate others to bend the game to your will. But I think the nature of brittleness is when the game state collapses, and that is usually in favour of one player, usually. Isn't brittleness just an extreme fragility? Yeah, I think so. When will the game snap? When will the Mm. game space reach a point of no return? How little does it take for the the players to push against the edges of this thing before the game's over, effectively? So, example being, I don't know, because it's on my mind right now, let's talk about the Queen's Gambit. You know, you lose your queen early, you should retire. Now, if the game's opaque, then you're there being the little girl saying, but I think I can do this. You don't realise you're dead. So it's actually quite a, I don't want to say toxic mix, but it's a dangerous mix where you can end up wasting an evening for want of a better term, <laughs> pl- playing a dead instance of the game because it was it's a fragile game. You took it beyond its, uh, its break point, but you didn't realise you had. And the last hour was a waste of time. You're right. You're, you're still throwing rocks over that brick wall and the, the greenhouse is already completely shattered and you're still doing it. You're still going for it. You've scored all the greenhouse points, Joe, and there's no panes of glass left for me to smash. You've already bowled a corker in our greenhouse smashy, smashy shopping trolley game. Um, coming to you from Capstone Games. What I would say about a lot of abstracts or two-player abstracts is that, yeah, the game state can fold in quite quickly, I think. Especially in two-player games, like you said, you can concede. I think one of the negatives for a, a fragile or brittle game in a multiplayer game is when does the game end? Because you might have one ooh, player... Oh, I've got to call you out there, Joe. Two is a mul- two is a multiple. Do you mean a f- <laughs> you mean three plus? Don't you? Well, uh, yes. As soon as you get a victor, then you've got a loser, right? But with more players, you might have a loser halfway through the game, but still there are potential victors fighting it out. So that is a potential negative, I think, or perceived negative, or a criticism that you could have with more than two players. I mean, there's definitely positives here, right? Because Mm -hmm. that being on the precipice of losing at any given time, that does lend a drama and a sense of emotional weight. Yeah, high stakes, maybe. And the mistakes matter. And there's maybe an enjoyable tension riding that line, isn't there? And stressing, yeah, stressing out about not making a mistake is part of the puzzle of the game or the increased sense of competition. Sure. I mean, games that are too loose, where if I make a mistake, instead of picking up two and a half points by way of turning my wheat into beer, I picked up 1.9 points by way of turning my wheat into whiskey. So much, who cares? I think another positive is the ability to have a major impact on the game state. I think a fragile game or one which is unstable can tip in lots of different directions and actually there's a real sense of agency in your decisions that you could really screw the game up you could really push it in an unexpected direction maybe maybe Maybe. well maybe it depends but there's the possibility of that i think it depends on perception though joe the reason i say the maybe is there are games like this that clearly exist i'm not saying your argument is without merit the problem is, until players have worked through that initial opacity, assuming we're talking about an artefact here that is both opaque and fragile, that unstable platform, it tipping around and someone ultimately winning, feels pseudo-random. It's not random, but until you actually have garnered the ability to read the ebbs and flows of this thing, you wouldn't know why you're tipping it in any one direction or another. Is there an advantage if I tip it this way? Oh, I made Joe win! 
There was no advantage there. But I think that is part of the mystery of the game and why we enjoy them, that we genuinely don't know what will happen in the game. And that kind of sense of exploration does excite us or it attracts us to these kind of games, I think. Looking at this more philosophically, I consider this podcast in part a hedonistic exercise. We oil ourselves from the waist up, sit here in our togas, stare at each other lovingly in the eyes. And after we've done all that, we realise the motivation of the podcast is to have new experiences. I don't cover stuff on the podcast or seek to cover stuff on the podcast that isn't going to make me think or isn't going to provide me with an experience that I want to share by way of sonic waves. And... If something is a very refined version of something else, or an incredibly polished worker placement, hand management, card stripping, ladder game, I'm just throwing some mechanisms together there, maybe very accomplished and fun to play, but doesn't actually make me think, doesn't motivate me to try and unpack it, because it's already unpacked itself. For me, though, I do think that these kind of games, I don't know, I just find them more exciting, and when they work... It's like electric. And I I feel like there's also more to discuss about these games because they have genuine, exciting or strange moments that come out of them. I agree with that. I guess my perspective is somewhat coloured by the fact most of these games demand that you play them many times, preferably on the bounce, for you to be able to start playing them rather than the game playing you. I've got some other negatives here. Games like this quite often will produce a runaway leader. Oh, thanks, Joe. I was sure to just compliment about my standard of play there, you know. They'll produce runaway leaders like Craig. I don't think... I, I think I've won, won this game far more than uh, you have, I think, if we tally them up, Craig. So let's not say we did no catch up mechanisms usually uh, and the games can seem unfair which you've alluded to and maybe the games are unfair and we talk about the games being brittle and snapping they may snap at an unexpected point there might be an anti-climax where just the actions of the players might draw the game to a sudden conclusion which no one was expecting and we didn't feel like the arc of the game is complete maybe and yeah that question about well if the game is over for one person and it's not over for the rest what does that mean for that one person but i'm sure we'll refer to that later in the podcast about this specific game yeah i guess the issue i take with that little monologue there joe and i'm not one to take issue with your monologues very often (laughs) is we have to accept we live in a universe where there are also some dross fragile games Mm. and dross opaque games. Mm. To be fair, let's be honest, some people just are repelled by even good fragile games and good opaque games. Here's a good example. Ponzi Scheme. Now, I've played this a couple of times. The first time, it struck the right notes. Every player just seemed to be flowing in time with what the game wanted to do. It was really exciting. We're passing money around, we're taking loans, we're desperately trying to survive until it built up to this huge crescendo where someone went bankrupt after taking way too much. But it was a really exciting end. Everyone really hanging on by their fingernails. And it, it was such a good first impression. Then I played another game in which one player didn't take loans to cover their interest. And that was almost against the spirit of the game and then the game was over without anyone feeling any of that tension or excitement that I had the previous game and I still haven't gone back to Ponzi's scheme because of that kind of memory of oh actually this game might not work which is such a shame because when it did work it was it was really good 
Yeah, my, my experiences of Ponzi scheme have been very group dependent. My first experience is more akin to your second experience where a player had realised that they had failed to understand the flow of the game about a third of the way in but then became an agent provocateur and tried to essentially commit suicide as quick as possible. So that instance of the game was, uh, for want of a better term, tattooed with his player's efforts to chuck it off the rails. I've played it in other settings with a more willing audience and it's been an absolute corker. So do revisit Ponzi scheme. That one, you could just have one person in a part of my friendship crappy mood throw that game into the mud ridden ditch everybody needs to be on it for that really so anyway you had another example container i've heard so many good things about container but i've yet to have a game which excites me which is frustrating because i think i see the potential in it to be excited the fact that it's all resting on the player's shoulders to make that game work the whole economy is up to what the players do and their options but the games i've had have been quite dull and I can't pinpoint why exactly. Game instances of Container can be like that. The first time I played Container, I, I, I don't want to say I hated it, but I certainly didn't understand why people got excited about it. It took me about four games of Container to really get it. That could just tell you that I'm very slow. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've definitely been where you are with it. All I'll say is a bit like the title today, it took me having a very good game of it where I came in knowing what I was doing from the off and things happened to go my way in terms of controlling players' incentives and then reacting the way I thought they would for it to land with me. Now, that could just tell you that I'm a child. I only like this game when I'm winning. Give me a biscuit. <laughs> it took that game for me to realise kind of where the pleasure was derived. That was obviously our review of Ponzi Scheme and Container. Should we, should we move on to Trans-Siberian Railroad? No, no, let's not. <laughs> let's talk about Irish Gage then, because I've heard many heartwarming tales of how Irish Gage was, you know, a very successful introduction to the train game genre, bringing families together. Yes or no answer, Craig. Is Trans-Siberian Railroad the kind of game you'd happily recommend it's a fun game for all the family during the winter season. No. Let's go on and explain why. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Trans-Siberian Railroad, I've been working on this, Craig, is snow joke. Uh, you know, this is going to come out with its candy cane-like Christmas front cover. Mm-hmm. Just in time for Christmas to be over, so good work there, Rio Grande. A nice January release for their Christmassy looking game. Uh, production issues aside, should we now talk in more detail about the game and its potential traps and pitfalls? Uh, what interesting ideas are in this game and how are they balanced on a, a brittle knife edge? Let's start by providing you with a bird's eye view of Trans-Siberian Railroad, an express teach, if you will, as if I didn't care if you learnt the rules or not and was just giving you enough information so you could survive a podcast talking about it. We will be investors attempting to accumulate the most wealth by the end of the game, wealth being the value of your shares, if you're lucky enough to cash them out, and the dividends that you accumulated throughout the game. At the start of the game, we have an opening auction for which the four stars companies will be put up for sale. It's a round the table auction and when you win a company you can put that money that you won the company with into its charters. It's an incremental capitalization type game and you can set the par price for the company if you will the initial stock price that value or lower. So just because you win it at 20 you could set it at the lowest value eight so on and so forth. Once the four starting companies 
have been auctioned. Whoever won the last company, the yellow company, well, they will be the first to take an action during the game. There's two other companies that come into play, but we will talk about those later during phase two of this podcast, if you will. Joe, I'm very confused by these actions. There's so many of them. There's a myriad of options that are just they're too much for my tiny, tiny brain. Please talk about these actions. There are three actions, Craig. I'll try and simplify it as as much as I can. I'll slim them right down. We've got build. Okay. Which means you take a cube from the company that you have majority of in terms of shares or shared majority. And then you can put that cube on the map. Or you could put two cubes, but putting two cubes costs more. So there's some money management here. Building faster means draining the cash from the company faster. And no cash means no more rail building. The cubes, Craig, are not shaped like little locomotives. They do represent your rail building, though, across the board. They're not shaped like locomotives. This is disgusting. You have to use your imagination in this game. Oh, I, I can't. No, I, I don't have the intelligence. There's another action, which is buy a share. You could buy a share, but you could also buy two shares. But buying two shares costs a little bit more. You put the money into the company, and that little bit more, you could choose which company to put in. The actions are slightly more complicated than that, because the single actions, that say you're building one or you're just buying one, that doesn't move the timing cube along the timing track. However, if you do a double action, a double build, or a double share purchase, that will move the timing track, which means you're closer to the round's end, which means you're closer to dividends. The third action, which is pass, that will also move the clock steadily towards dividends. In between every dividends payment, there are five burst actions, if you will, assuming there's no passes. That sounds quite a bit like Irish Gage in so much as we're individually taking actions and there's no fixed rotor of what those actions need to be. A little bit like Chicago Express, that after a certain number of actions have been taken, then you will have dividends paid out. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, so there's some influences there. Wonderful. I mean, one of those influences is Tom herself. So, you know, not to be, no shocker there. (laughs) I think we should probably talk to the map a little bit. I don't mean the actual shape of it, just what it looks like. I don't want to say what it looks like, but how it's made. The map is kind of like a spider's web of connections, predefined. It's not like a hex type grid where you have got agency to build them north, south, east, west. You are building along set routes, kind of like Northern Pacific. Is that a fair statement? Like Northern Pacific or uh, some of the other Winsome Train games. And the map spreads from the east of Russia, darting out of Moscow, and flows all the way out towards the west. It starts in the west of Russia and goes all the way to the east. Ah, that's embarrassing, isn't it? I don't know why I get that. It's never eat shredded wheat, isn't it? It's never eat shredded wheat. And I had a way of doing it. I used to get it wrong at school all the time, Joe, until my teacher wrote east and west on the back of my hands with permanent marker, which I found humiliating and as such taught me about east and west. (laughs) I should get it tattooed on my hands. You don't want to know where north and south was written. But anyway, (laughs) so... um, (laughs) That second bit that second bit was a lie for an avoidance of lawsuits against my old primary school teachers. Right. So, so. Essentially, it's the map of Russia and all the train lines, uh, which are already fixed, and you will be placing your cubes between these points to show that that line has been built. And when you place a cube on an area, the area will have a number written on it, and that's how much the revenue 
of your company will increase by if you've played cube rails a lot of these concepts aren't going to be alien to you the only complexity i guess is the stuff in the center of a map is considered domestic and you can build cubes on there a bit faster for one of a better term and the stuff at the edges of the map is higher value it's called international or external connections and those require a special subtype of the build action to build upon it's slightly more expensive but it counts as a burst action so it moves the cube on so it's net cheaper if your only goal is to move the cube on and get a share price bump a share price bump oh well the share prices that they do move in this game which is nice during this game if you take one of the double build actions or if you build an external connection the russian stock market is so excited by the nature of your works that the value of your stock goes up by one notch the other thing keen russian investors are aware of is how much your company is earning so when you cross certain thresholds on the dividends track racetrack thingamabob then you will also receive a share bump so it's possible maybe you get one two or three share bumps in the same one action the third condition in which you get a share bump is if you are the top earning share during a dividends payout, thereby making your shares almost impossible for you to afford yourself, causing future you future problems. Yes, don't make your company too good, or you won't be able to buy any more shares. At which stage it will become too bad. No, I think that's a reasonable take on the whole episode, Joe. So, Hey, um, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You forgot the government are hungry for your railroads. Of course they are, Joe. They always want to nationalise these bloody governments. Outrageous. You might imagine yourself as a keen investor in the Russian railroads, buying up shares in all the new and exciting startup railway companies. Those shares will hopefully be worth some value at the end of the game, except some of those shares might not stay with you for the entire game, because some of those shares might be gobbled up by the nationalisation cube. There's a huge cube on the board which marches down this track. Sometimes it'll advance only one step. Sometimes it'll advance three steps. And after a certain point in the game, when one or more companies have done so well and reached or surpassed the unlucky Sorok Vossum on the stock market, what happens next? Then the nationalisation cube, at least the size of five Northern Pacific cubes, eats your company. That's my understanding of how it works, yeah? I'm imagining a giant Pac-Man-esque type cube here that eats the smaller cubes. It should be shaped like that in the game. It shouldn't actually be a cube, this one. I think it should be, yeah, circular, like a pie shape with a mouth cut out of it, shouldn't it? I think that would maintain the theme beautifully. I hear the Russians are obsessed with Pac-Man. Yeah, along with Pac-Man and other arcade classics, the Russian government in the 19th century was keen to encourage railway investment and very happy to gobble up unprofitable lines. Yeah, it's interesting that, because you say about them eating the least profitable companies, but actually... It's weird. It's, it feels more like an opportunistic investor where it's not tracking the dividends. It's just tracking whether you're cheap enough and if it can afford you. And if it can afford you, it's just going to buy you and subsume you into its horrible nationalised mass. And you might be holding two, three, four shares and suddenly they've evaporated from your hands. Well, there's a little bit of compensation. You get a bonus payout as you're being shooed out the door by the cronies of the Russian government. They let you have one more dividend and send you into the wastelands of Siberia. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're going to spend your dividend on in the wastelands of Siberia. Probably a new coat. It's got lots of trees. That's all I know about Siberia. You know more than me. You know more than me. I, I, I knew it was cold, but... Not, not in the summer. It could be very nice in the summer, I hear. 
<laughs> Lovely. Oh, I feel so stupid now. Should we start with the initial auction? Because there are two important considerations here. And these are two important considerations I don't think I've really completely puzzled out yet. So it'd be interesting to talk through these things. First off, we're going through auctioning off these companies one by one, a bit like Irish Gage or Chicago Express. It's the usual kind of opening auction. However, when you've purchased that share, you will then set the par price. And the home station. Should have mentioned that. You also define the home station. I don't think there's a whole heap of differences around that, but it's probably worth mentioning. Yeah, it will determine your starting income. That's either two or three. But the way the map is set up, you're more likely to land your home station with three income. And I'm probably thinking of heading southeast or potentially north. Those going east will be crushed into competition, as there isn't a huge amount of branching eastward paths. So you'll be leasing each other's tracks as you leapfrog your way to the track's end. So there are some considerations around that, but the, the most important one, I think, is the par value. Let's say in a four-player game, you start with 40 rubles, then you can buy one share. Let's say you auction up to 24, where you could set your par price at 24, but that's more than half of your starting capital. That's a key number here, Joe, isn't it? That's a key number. Explain why half your starting capital is such a key number. Well, the funny thing is, with one share, it's only a little private railroad. It's going back and forth on a little branch line from Moscow to some village outside of Moscow. Maybe St. Petersburg, the famous village of St. Petersburg. Yep, that village. However, it will just go back and forth, back and forth between that one location. You won't be able to extend beyond that until it becomes a public company. A public company is basically a company that's had more than one share sold. So if you want to ensure that your company can expand, absolutely definitely ensure it without help from others, you're going to have to leave some capital over to buy that second share. And so setting it 24, which is more than half of your starting capital, there will be no way to buy another share. And then you're relying on the goodwill of your fellow Russian investors. Goodwill, which may or may not, or may not, or may not exist. Sorry. Additional may nots for emphasis there, folks. I think if you make a pricing error like that in the opening auction, where you make it so you can't afford a second share in your own company, I think you're probably dead. You, you're frostbitten. There's no game left for the here. Does that sound fair? I think that's fair because if another player can see that they could quite easily leave your company to never expand, then maybe they will do that. I think the point being here is, right, if you won the auction at 24, you'd be inclined to set the stock value at 16 so you could buy that second share. You'd be more willing to throw away the eights worth of value, you know, the share value that could have been, but at least have the company running than be left exposed. The interesting thing is that all of the money that you bid will go into the company. Sure. So that's quite a nice starting capital, isn't it? So you've set the value at 16, but you've actually got 24 rubles in the bank. And then an additional 16 when someone buys a second share. If we were to set it at 8, let's say, then any further investment in your company, that money is not going to take you very far. And uh, just for reference, the building costs are 4 rubles for 1 cube rail and 12 rubles for 2 
cube rails. So setting a low value will mean that you or other players will be buying additional shares at a lower value, meaning a lower value will be making its way into the company's cash register. You're very much riding the cusp here of perfect pricing. And it seems to me that anywhere between 16 and 20, which is a very narrow range, <laughs> is fine. Anything lower seems very dangerous. But then in our last game, mutual friend Simon, I th I'm fairly sure he's he set his stock value at eight and was able to buy up quite a few shares and ended up coming you know, close to the pack at the very end of the game. I think if memory serves, didn't his company get eaten up, though? It did. Yeah, that's the but... problem, right? That's the problem, right? Because the nationalisation cube, it starts its business at the 24 mark and it progresses every round. It's quite hard to catch up to that nationalisation cube if you start your stock value that low. So it's a double killer, right? You don't have a lot of capital coming in, so you can't do a lot of builds, which means you can't develop value, which means you can't buy that many shares necessarily. And on the flip side, you're starting quite far back on the stock value. And because you can't develop the dividend value, you're not getting the free bumps or as many free bumps as you'd like, which means you're behind the nationalisation cube. It's just if you set too low, you seem to be working disproportionately hard versus those who did not. I wouldn't speak in such definites. I'm sure in the game I'm referring to, the player managed to very quickly buy up three, maybe three of the, their own shares. It was the Blue Company, I think. And then that company allowed him enough dividends that he could buy into the more profitable companies that ended the game. Like his, his initial company was gobbled up, but he did manage to get the red and the yellow shares, which were shooting out towards the horizon. I'm not sure it's as simple as that, and I'll explain why. Because this is a diluting shares game, where one share pays you 100%, and three shares pays you 100% plus some rounding math. The fact that he bought three shares, all it did was protect him against dilution. Mm. He had to buy three shares. All being as low as eight seemed to do for him was let him buy that second share to get it building earlier than he otherwise might. I felt like the buying three shares thing to keep ferreting capital in there was born out of necessity rather than it being a great thing to do. But no one else was buying up those shares. No one else was diluting that company because everyone knew it would be gobbled up. But the fact is it actually ran quite profitably and was earning large dividends, which he was getting 100% of. I don't remember it earning large dividends. I seem to remember it being middle of the pack. It was behind red and yellow, at which stage it's third place of dividends. It was ahead of green, but green had an obnoxious start. Green didn't even go online until about round three of the dividend chart. Third place, but third place divided between only one player. So, I mean, we're, we're probably remembering slightly different emphasis on the same events and you mm -hmm. want it, Joe, so I suspect your memory is going to be better than mine. <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I was riding the glory. Didn't really care about anyone else, which we'll, we'll, come, we'll, we'll come, back come back to, to later. Yeah, we'll definitely <laughs> yeah, come back yeah. to that, yeah. yeah we will come back to that later. I'll just talk from my point of view what I'm trying to get out of that opening auction, okay? I either want to have a strong company that I can run, and that may be forced on me by having to be the first bidder in the auction, and I'd rather win one company than no companies, or I want to be holding three shares. Now, I have done all right out of an auction where I've won zero shares, but I've known I'm going to be the second actor. I'm sitting to the left of the yellow president, so I've been able to start the game with a double share build, and that's worked out in that game because that president actually left themselves very vulnerable. They didn't have enough money to buy second share in either of their companies. 
But the beauty there was because they were parred quite highly, we could stick a lot of money into those companies. So earning 50% of the dividends from two strong companies with two presidents able to take actions for both of them was a very attractive position. So I agree with you, there's no definites. Yeah, I think our uh, conversation exposes how we're, we're still trying to unravel this. Indeed. You did mention then in our discussion there of trying to recollect events from just like a couple of days ago, you mentioned about sitting to the left of the the person with the yellow company. So what are the considerations then coming out of that initial auction? What advantages do we have being close to that yellow player? The first thing every player is likely to have to do is buy a second share in their own company. Now, you might have an angel investor, a la my description earlier, that lets you get building earlier, but you may still want to buy another share because you've kept the money to one side to protect you from dilution. But the odds are the first round of table, everybody's going to be buying another share. And that doesn't move the time tracker on. Well, not unless it's a double buy. Bear in mind, in our games, where there's been five players, somebody's not getting a company, right? So the odds are they've got all their money from the opening auction. They're probably buying two shares, which does move the timing cube on. But that's just by the buy. So it cycles round again to the second action of the turn. What next? Then you're going to want to be making builds that block parts of the board. Now, there is no blocking in this per se, but only one cube can live on each of the cube homes, the rail sheds, if you will. I'm not sure what I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them slots. I, I No, I like cube homes. It gives those uh, little cubes more character, I think. Okay, fine. The cube kennels. There you go. I'm going with, I'm going with the kennels. It's people can lease your kennels. So another Tom Russellism. If someone wants to use your track to leapfrog it, they can pay from their company's charter to your company's charter some fee that varies depending on the type of build you're doing. If you're building external connections, it's higher than if you're building internal track. And then you can carry on building from your new piece of track, moving ever onwards towards the great east. Or is it west? But here's the thing. If you're an investor, like I say, that first action, you're going to want to do a double share buy, which then could adjust everybody else's timing. Okay, do I buy my second share now? Or do I get those nice builds in where I'm likely to get royalties from the other companies coming through and worry about my own personal portfolio later? But if you happen to be sitting further down the order from the yellow company holder, I think there's also a chance that you don't have a second action before we go into dividends. So you may have bought that one share and not of being able to extend its route, not being able to increase its income. And then you've already hit the, the end of the timer track, so you're already not doing as well as those other players. Let's be honest, you can come out of that opening auction already not doing as well as those other players if you get it wrong. Although me being a parent of these dangers, I did assume that I was completely out of the game, having only bought a second share but built nowhere, but managed actually to turn things round. Did you turn it round, or did other people buying your stuff turn it round? Oh, well, it could have been that. It could have been me just floating along on other people's actions and gaining from their mistakes. So it's not a dig, Joe. It's absolutely not a dig. But no, 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 I know. We, we spoke about it afterwards in the post, and it's kind of like, how much of your success in this game is born from what you do sometimes a lot, but sometimes you're carried up on the shoulders of the rest of the table thinking what happened. Yes, there are many opportunities to make mistakes and you can make big mistakes very early on and be left crying and depressed for the remainder of the game. The metaphor I use is it's like Greco-Roman wrestling on the top of a 50p piece where they're straining against each other and it should be jolly exciting. Oh, you're dead. The opportunity to make mistakes. Oh, 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 I made a mistake. I'm dead. 
the opportunity to fall off that cliff edge of the sides of this 50p piece is quite apparent. And the point I'm trying to drive to here is if I hadn't have bought a share in both of Simon's companies, maybe I buy one and one, you know, one in his company, one in somebody else's. Maybe I don't buy any of Simon's shares. Simon's probably out of that game entirely. And you could say, oh, well, individual X just made a mess up there. Happens when you learn in a game and, you know, wouldn't happen too often. It just seems to be a commonality that in every game, someone misjudges that pricing. There are multiple decisions you're making here. How high should I bid for a company? How high will I bid to encourage other players to spend more than they should? What shall I par my company at? Can I come out of the opening auction with the ability to buy a double share? And can I do all that while trying to manipulate the starting turn order? Because that's like staring into the white sun of the desert. It's not until towards the end of this opening auction that the dust will settle and you'll be in a position to see who might be the yellow player. There's plenty of ways to get that opening auction wrong. There seems to be a few big patterns for how to get it right. But like you said earlier, Joe, neither you nor I are full experts in this. So what I identify as a pattern isn't necessarily absolute. I want to come out of that opening sequence, either with the potential for free shares, two of mine, one of somebody else's, probably. The potential to, if I'm not going to get a company at all, the potential to leech onto the best companies or decide which are going to be the best companies. Or just a nice stable position where, okay, I've an early company but it's a price that i'm happy with i'm going to pack the second 20 ruble cash injection into it and trot along and do my best i think it's fair to say that the opening auction and the resulting player position setup has significant impact consequences almost set in stone not necessarily the outcome but significant outcomes throughout the next 90 minutes And it ties into your image of the map being like a spider's web. I think the threads are woven in the first five minutes of the game. And we said that this game might be considered opaque. You might not necessarily know in that instant how things will pan out. But by its end, it's the irony of fate. You'll be able to look back from your grave and pinpoint exactly how and when you died. This auction is a moment born from chaos, like a droplet of water running down your wrist. Variations in the blood vessels, imperfections in the skin, never repeat and vastly affect the outcome. Let's uh, talk about another important aspect of this game, controlling the clock. And I see that happening in two respects. So we've got the double or single actions, And you've also got the speed of this nationalisation cube. When is it that you would like to quickly speed through to dividends? When is it when you want to take those single actions to extend the round as long as possible? Well, interestingly, when you buy a single share, which is probably what you're going to be able to afford, you're going to have to accept the fact that the round is going to be extended, whether you want to or not. Taking the double action to buy two shares feels like a rarity in this game. No absolutes. I'm not saying you'll never be doing it mid-game, but it will typically be reliant on somebody having started their companies at a low price, or when the new companies come in, they can come in at quite a cheap price quite often. But by and large, most of your share purchasing actions will be single action. So you are implicitly extending how long that round is going to be and creating more opportunities for people to build, or maybe just fewer opportunities for you to build if everybody else just hammers the double builds. 
when do I want to have a shorter round versus a longer round? I probably want to have a shorter round when my company is starting to run low on cash. And by my company, I mean the company I have the most shares in and thereby receive the most payout for proportionally. The reason I say that is I would like to get paid sooner to be able to inject more capital back into that company if it's running low on cash. That's one consideration. Another consideration why I might want a short round, I think for me... It's that whole classic thing of are people catching me up with their builds? Have I run out of runway onto which to build? Do I need this game to be a shorter game or a longer game? Well, sometimes you want to take a double action, a double build, when your company is just flush with cash, right? When the coffers are full, you'll want to be double building because double building will increase your efficiency for your, your action. It would also increase the income of your company far faster. However, later on in the game, when you've got the nationalization cube quickly jumping towards you to gobble you up, then maybe actually you want to collaborate with others around the table to take single actions in the hope that you can increase your income to get the stock value bumps on the income track and survive another round of Punishment Park. But here's the problem. All three of you are doing single bills and I go... Aha, double build. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that, Craig. Yeah, but I did. Quite often I won't see the whole table agreeing to do that. It will be a couple of players who are very worried that half of their portfolio is going to disappear. So between them... They can half the speed of the clock. Yes. Sure. And, and sometimes that works. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it relies on one player around the table to either take a single or a double action and it will be them deciding and you won't have any choice in how that round ends. I tend to see a pattern of, if in doubt, double build, and I'm not sure that's correct. I wonder if that's novice play. In theory, double building isn't that great for two reasons. One, it can push your share price up beyond that which you can afford if you do it too much early game, meaning you're waiting for quite a while before you dump more money into the company. Now, don't get me wrong, it will be a significant amount of money, but you could have a flat spot where you don't have any increased earnings at all beyond a certain point because you just push your share price up too high. And the other reason, Joe, is you pay a slight subsidy or an overage for doing the double builds. It doesn't actually use the money on the charter the most efficient way. There's a push and a pull. Let's get the money now uh, rather than worry about the long-term health of the company. And I think you can ask me, do I think about the long term health of the company? Yes, I do. I do because I can't sell my shares. So I want those shares to rise in value. I want those shares to survive. But when you're in a round and they're very finite number of actions, I don't know, there's always that hunger, that greed, isn't there? Which is, is kind of whispering in your ear, double action, double action, double action. Because if you don't take that double action, you can start calculating it, can't you? You can start looking around the table. Okay, if I don't take a double action, maybe this person does take a double action. It's not in their interest to take a double action. You can start to try and get into the heads of other players there. But in terms of my play, I will always fall back on greed and take that double action. That seems to be a reasonably common thing, especially when you think about the other incentive for taking the double action, getting into the plum spots where you're going to receive subsidy stroke lease money money from the other companies moving forwards right at least once or twice and there's another aspect to leasing track uh, a tool that's not immediately explicit a tool for capital control indeed if you are running two companies maybe as a co-president say for one of them then it's very attractive to move money from company a to company b 
once you know which way's up in this game, that's probably the more meaningful part of leasing, I would argue. Yeah, I, I love that sense of corruption in this game. The shuffling the money around. The fact that you're able to maybe buy a share in a company which is lower down on the stock market, but then use that company to transfer it into another company in which you can't buy shares. That's, I don't know, that, that just seems like a really intriguing, interesting mechanism within this game. The problem I found with this was, are you moving meaningful sums of money around? It tended to take quite a bit of work to move enough money across to fund a double connection. I mean, I like the feel of it, but actually more often than not, it might have funded one or two extra builds and that was that. I think there might be some play in it that we haven't yet discovered. If you're taking huge leaps down the whole width of the map, then you could potentially be pushing a lot of money into another company. Because for every cube kennel, that's an additional two ruples, isn't it? Two or four, depending on whether you're building an internal or an external connection, but sure. Yeah, okay. I, I'll concede that there could be more game there than we've seen in our place, but I'm yet to have it make a difference between my victory and my loss yet. I think we've seen kind of tactical moments where we've realised that one company is completely out of funds, and actually a quick jump over that company with another will give it four ruples, which will allow it to build again to increase its income and push it over a stock jump. That could be the saviour of that company when that nationalisation Pac-Man comes along. That leasing track thing, just to reiterate, lends a sense of danger when you have a partner. Are they partnering with you to make a super strong company that you work together towards or are they partnering with you to dump as much money into their other company as possible? Because even though those twos and fours and sixes might not be enough to grant you an extra build, they may be enough to deny the company that you're taking the money from quite significant progress. And Speaking of progress, I'm going to call for a half-time podcast break. I'm going to interrupt and go to something which I know that you're always fascinated by, which is Russian railway history. Do you want me to do the old Philly harmonic violins in the background, yeah? The Ballad of Siberia there. Um, you could do, but that might put me off in my retelling of the story of the Emperor's finger. On you go. Emperor Nicholas I of Russia was furious about the delays in his design of his railway line from Moscow to the uh, tiny Russian village of St. Petersburg. These emperors, they're always furious, aren't they? He was so angry and so mad when he spoke to his chief engineers who were debating about the route the rail should be built. He took a ruler and drew a straight line on the map. Build it like this he said. But by accident, the emperor's finger was just outside of the ruler when the quill ran down it and created a small arc on the map. No one would dare go against the emperor's will, so they built a perfectly straight railroad with a sudden bend in the middle. And by bizarre coincidence, I hear that's exactly how Tom Russell designed this game too. She too caught more than one finger in the ruler, turning what was once a simple straight line of a cube rail game into this wonky monstrosity. And that's probably not true, and nor is this story. The truth is, uh, there was a big hill that none of the locomotives were powerful enough to ascend, and the trains literally had to be decoupled and dragged up the hill one by one. And the whole process took two hours. But 
Going down was even worse because the trains would just burn through their brake pads and would ride off the tracks and crash at the bottom. And all this sounds a lot like something out of Thomas the Tank Engine. I know you've been watching quite a bit of Thomas the Tank Engine recently, haven't you, Craig? I've been watching tons of Thomas the Yank Engine until I found out there was an English audio track set. So I'll tell you, hearing Thomas the Yank Engine was quite a something. You can't listen to the American audio. You need Ringo Starr narrating it. We should have got him on to tell the story of the Empress Finger. Isn't he dead? Ringo Starr's much alive, but Nicholas I is definitely dead. I was obviously talking about Nicholas I. (laughs) (laughs) Checks Google to see if he's alive or dead. Oh man, it was touch and go. He's 80. He's he's still playing in bands and doing drumming and all that kind of stuff. Whoa, I want to know what he's having. Anyway, just to round off this story, because you'll want to know what happened with the Empress Finger. On October the 27th, 1869, a fire burnt through one of the wooden bridges that led to the big hill, and the engineers decided to replace the bridge with metal. But the engineers realised, actually, if they didn't build the railway in a straight line, and they just built it a few miles north, they could do it a lot cheaper, and you wouldn't have to have this terrifying roller coaster of a ride. The whole story about Emperor Nicholas I is completely untrue because he'd actually died 25 years earlier, so he had nothing to do with this diversion. Lovely. So, uh, fake news from you there, Joe. No worse than your Ringo Starr is dead news. Oh, sure. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that, that change of pace. From violent downhill ride along that line to a slow drag up the hill. Shall we go into phase two? To the station they thundered, disaster lay ahead. That was a clip from Thomas the Tank Engine, narrated by Ringo Starr, and perfectly sums up phase two of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, where the broken parts of smashed-up locomotives come raining down upon all the players involved. Or, to put it another way, phase two is when a company reaches or surpasses value 48 on the stock market. It's what I like to call the leg of the goat on the windscreen moment. We suddenly have an auction for two new companies that enter the game. These companies aren't really companies, are they, Joe? They're like hair triggers. That's what they are, really. They're two little hair triggers waiting for somebody to pull them. And they will put the willies up, people. They will. Um, is that is that is that a, a phrase oh! that a, anyone else but the people in the UK use? <laughs> Um, hey, I tell you what, it doesn't mean what you think it means, folks. It, Willie's was like the fear, for want of a better term. Although if you, you force it another way, it probably filled you with fear as well, coming from Joe. But I've just told you the, the story of the Emperor's Finger. You should be feeling the fear. <laughs> oh, my word. Right. So, yeah. These two new companies come into the game and theoretically you would think, oh, an opportunity to start some new things that are going to be wonderfully profitable. Except the odds are you're all incredibly poor compared to how you were in the opening auction. So you'll struggle to float these companies at anything but maybe top whack 16, more likely eight, that sort of money. You're certainly not going to want to put a ton of money into them because the Mm. odds are they're going to be behind where the nationalisation cube is. Well, the thing is, I was about to say that, I mean, you, you could potentially have the money there you could have 24 you could have 28 to bid on them but that Mm. nationalization cube has been going up 
throughout this game. And not only do you need the money to buy the first share, Joe, if you're going to make a go of it and not just have them be private companies that drop backwards in value forevermore until the end of the game, giving you very little back, you are going to need two lots of the money to buy the second share to make them go public, at which stage they're immediately in danger of being murdered by the nationalisation cube. So why would anyone take on these companies? First of all, you might be in a desperate position. Because if no one buys these companies, then suddenly the nationalisation T-Rex, which has been chasing your trains the whole way through this game, will jump forward three blocks. So normally, the nationalisation cube will move forward one spot per round. So in theory, if there was no nationalisation in the game, it would move forward five spots. That's not that terrible a challenge to stay ahead of, really, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's eminently doable. But in the event that it nationalises a company, any company, it will move forward three spots. And if it nationalises two companies on the same round, say, it will move forward six spots. I guess you can see the trend here. I could do the free company example, but I trust our listeners to be astute individuals. Nine spots, nine spots, okay? For those at the back, nine spots. It might put someone in a position where they're thinking, well, I don't actually want to buy that share. I don't want anything to do with this tiny little company, which is bound to be gobbled up at some point. But if I don't buy it up now, all of my hopes and dreams that I've been hanging on to with the green company will be swallowed up by the next round. It's always the green company, Dale. Just so you know, it's always the green company. Don't ever buy a green share ever again. Carry on. <laughs> uh, just to allow our, our listeners in our private joke, Dale started the Green Company a few times and failed miserably each time. Dale was forced both times to buy one and then two of these companies to ensure his Green Company didn't go under. Or at least he did it to delay the inevitable for as long as possible. So that's the situation you can see coming out of that phase two auction. Sure. So you're going to purchase it to protect your other investments. The problem here is, I find, Joe, that typically if you're struggling that much anyway, you really needed that money for the company you were trying to protect. So it's a touch of, ooh, I'm freezing to death. And the only thing I've got to burn is my jumper. I best burn my jumper. Ooh, that's gone out now. Now what am I going to do? Oh, I have no jumper. But, Craig, we were talking earlier about all that devious shuffling of money. You want to help your, your dying company. You push as much money into this new company that's suddenly formed. You buy a second share in it so that it can leap right the way over your initial company, the company that's dying, the one you need funds in. And you've effectively transferred all that money into it without having to buy that green share let's say i think that's viable assuming certain things about the player count that the clock's not going to whip around before you get a chance to actually exercise that option of spending the money so for instance let's just say your dying company is quite high in share value it's done a bit of work before it's got terminal but you can't afford that second share then maybe you know maybe let's just say that second share is 44 well maybe you start this new company at 16 buy a second one 32 you were able to dump most of that money into the other company all wonderful right joe but it's still not as good as buying a green share because you're not going to see hardly any of that value back because the nationalisation will probably compensate you for circa 12. So you've dumped 32 money down the hole to receive 12 value back, stick a bit of money in your green company. Hopefully the green company keeps chugging along. But oh wait, Joe, because you were farting around trying to do this lease build, <laughs> your green company didn't get to build at all. And now it's nationalised. And now you have nothing. Oh, 
Now, I'm giving a very brutal scenario there of what could happen with the timing, but the point I'm really trying to make is actions are tight and the timing cube will move down that chart very quickly if other players perceive you're under pressure to the point where people may even pass just to move that cube down, meaning those wonderful things you were trying to achieve, that big old rope that you were trying to make into a lovely knot is probably going to end up being tied around your neck. Going back to that, auction i'm worried about the the nationalization here i've got to buy a share in it because if i don't then my company's going to be absorbed so alternatively you could par it low at eight and then you could not buy that second share just as a delay tactic that seems more viable because a single share company is still a private company and private companies don't get gobbled up by the nationalization cube I think that's probably, in a lot of scenarios, the right thing to do. I'll chuck a meager eight down the hole. If you're already at the back and that eight makes a difference between you buying a share in the company you're trying to save and not, then that's quite unfortunate. But despite being unfortunate, I've seen it a few times. But then you are kind of relying on other people's charity not to go, well, it's in my incentive. I'm a front runner and I want as many of these following companies dead as possible. So I want the black and the white companies gone. I'm going to help you guys by taking a double action and buying both of those. I know actions are tight. Don't get me wrong. So maybe socially it feels awkward to murder a player who's already struggling. That might save you one or two games until you realise the nature of this game is someone's got to be kicked about a bit. But putting the competition under heaps of pressure by moving that cube on six spots, that's a pretty good payoff for your action this turn. Let's say they're weird companies, they're born to die. You only live twice or live and let die. Live and let die, I think. Although it's uh, yeah, more like born to die, but I digress. <laughs> So we talked about how taking the double action seems more prevalent in our games, even though we might admit that actually, for the sake of everyone's survival, that the single actions might actually make more sense. I think this ties into something you observed about the game earlier in the year, uh, and I took note of it because I thought it was a clever thing. I've got a little notebook, and whenever you say something clever, I note it down, Craig. Well, I'm not clever enough to remember the clever things, so really, <laughs> paradoxically, they can't be that clever. You said that you thought that the game operates as a strategic game with a tactical interface. And I think actually it's why the game is as fragile or as unstable as it is. And I think arguably the way the actions are allowed in the action allowance system is I think why the game doesn't quite work. So I was thinking about the double actions and it got me thinking about greed and I started reading around about the psychology of greed and I came across the interconnectedness of choices individuals make in communities, what ecologist Garrett Hardin's called the tragedy of the commons. I knew we were going there. I knew it was either tragedy of the commons or prisoner's dilemma and I reckon it might even be both but let's carry on. So the whole idea is that some free market economy theories say that if everyone strives for maximum personal benefit, society too will be elevated and lifted up with them. Except this does ignore taxing on common resources. And this is all motivated not necessarily by greed, but by strategic choices. It's the dichotomy between immediate benefit and sustainability in a competition-indexed landscape. It's snow country for old men. I wrote that joke earlier. It's this, this classic organic humour. It's not all written in my little notebook here at all. Anyway, you have the drive for the double action, which in turn depletes the number of actions people can take, which simultaneously 
pushes the nationalization cube further and further towards your little train companies. But there is no game state here where everyone loses, and there is no action that is self-sacrificial to balance out the drive towards doom. You have the environment and instability of a semi-cooperative game, but it's not billed as a semi-cooperative game. I'd say it's a strategic competitive game with a tactical semi-cooperative interface. But there isn't a space for that in a game like this. No, in this you've got five blocks on this timing track, so it's effectively, you've got five minutes to sort out a world trade deal, go. And I did promise we were going to bring Prisoner's Dilemma into this, and I guess that is part of the problem, right? So let's first say, for instance, we go around the table, it's a five-player game, everybody takes their single actions, clock doesn't move forwards, but I betray. Well, the problem is, you, on your second time around the table as the first player in the round, you've got to take a double action. You can't just keep trusting me and take single actions and let me benefit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm everybody else's expense continuously so the cooperations tend to be very short-lived because it's always in somebody's interests to move that clock forward so Mm. why wouldn't they betray to then pull the puppet strings on everybody else to help drive that clock forwards because they win either way joe oh i'm already winning so i want the clock to move forwards i betray furthering my interests even further now if you keep doing your single actions i'll pull away even further and of course there's that x factor of you could run out of money with those double actions fine in which case you just pass to move the clock forward the way the action mechanism is integrated into this game it seems to be devouring the game itself like it's eating itself the whole thing is collapsing into that enormous board cube no more star trek in this show ever joe i'm just just gonna say because you're doing it wrong board cubes don't collapse into themselves that's black holes no yeah i was imagining it kind of sucking other spaceships into it that's a a tractor beam beam, beam, center gravity yeah it could be a death star pulling in the millennium falcon we'll mix our sci-fi the listeners will love that shit Hey, I've got a sci-fi quote for you. Tom Russell was so preoccupied with whether or not she could, she didn't stop to think if she should. Very good. Another not quite criticism, but comment about this game, and linking to your idea that cooperation is short-lived, is that all the tools and mechanisms we've spoken about, cooperative or not, all of them are highly circumstantial. You may not even see them used in the game, pulling the trigger on the nationalisation jump successfully, making leasing leaps to fund your company. That is entirely dependent on the funds you have and how the map is set up and which companies you have shares in. And we've had brief encounters with each. I wonder though, do you think there's space for direct collaboration in this game? Table talk and negotiation. Do you think that's the way it's meant to be played? The actions are very snappy. I do this type of build. Let's do the accounting around it. Okay, I do that type of build. Let's do the accounting around it. I buy that share. Let's do the accounting around it. It's that kind of Jamie Stegmaier atomic actions type thing that whenever I see that interface, it doesn't scream negotiation to me. Now, that could just be the framing and the anchor references I'm deploying against that kind of action cadence. I'm not convinced. I mean, I get a lot of Tom Russell's games do expect that kind of talk to drag leaders back and to do such like. And to be fair, in the middle of the game, there can be some quid pro quo type chats of, hey, I'll lease off your blue company if you use your green company to lease off my black company. That stuff is plausible, but I wouldn't say it's the the veins running through the stilton of this game. It's kind of more like an occasional nut in your very low-grade 
ginger nut biscuits. <laughs> Do you think that we've been playing this initial auction too cautiously, maybe? Because as we've seen, two players building for the same company can rocket it across the map. Does conservative play reduce the options for other players to collaborate? Is the the value of an alliance larger than leaving someone dead in the dirt? I want to say that every game is alive with those opportunities right, to collaborate. I want to say that the game is alive with positive interaction as well. Not convinced that's true. So I think we've spoken to the actual structure of the beast well enough. Shall we talk to the, the tone of it, if you will? The relationships between the players, the feelings it evokes, those sort of woolly, wonderful things that I know we could just run a whole podcast on. I think let's talk to the game and how the system allows or even encourages that negative interactions or how you're stuck in positions which are wholly negative, not necessarily rushing to a conclusion here, just still talking about the game itself. Not rushing to a conclusion, Joe. Outrageous. I caught it. I caught it. Even if our listeners didn't, I caught it. We've talked about kind of how tough this game is and we've really leaned into the, the fact that it's in Siberia, cold in the winter, but maybe quite sunny in the summer. How much of this is set in the winter and how much is set in those sunny, sunny few days? Yeah, days, exactly. Days out of a year. That's, I think you've defined it pretty well there. You can end up in a situation that your only action is to improve another player's position. So let's say, well, you, you can't afford to buy a share. Then you could build, but I'm going to build in a company that I'm sharing with Jeff. And Jeff's got two shares, but he's also got a load of other shares. I've only got these two shares. So I'll build, which is giving him value, and him rising above the other players. But that, that's all I can do. Or I could pass. That doesn't feel very good, does it? Alternatively, Joe's got two red shares and he's run out of money because red share's doing so well because he priced it so high initially, but it's still not paying quite enough dividends for him to buy shares. But then Craig and Simon buy some red shares and then Joe's got loads of stuff he can do again to progress his company and get bonds of cash and to drive towards the top of the share chart, right? Like... Sometimes your abject failure and being punished with the pass, pass, pass stick or your relative success and having something to do to actually constructively do with your companies in the map. It's just something beyond your control. My success was born as much, if not more, by what other people chose to buy. And this seems to be a commonality here with some of Tom's designs. That kind of, for want a better term, drive to have meaningful interactions and alliances can sometimes create situations where, I observed this in another one of Tom's titles, your success is more of a product of what shares people chose to buy, i.e. we've decided the white company is going to do well today. We're all buying white shares, therefore the white company goes up in value. Oh, aren't you doing well? Well, whoever's holding the most white shares will be doing well. And it wasn't a product of them necessarily anything they did on the board. It was a product of collective behaviour. You're at the mercy of other players' actions throughout this game, whether you win, whether you lose, or whether you end up not being able to do anything, or you're kind of middle of the pack. Well, your companies get gobbled up. I think good play will put you in the running. I think it's bad play. You can eliminate yourself, okay? So good play is not eliminating yourself with bad power pricing. Good play is taking double buy opportunities where they make sense and double buying the right thing. But that's beyond yeah. that. The thing is, I think, let's say you've got a group 
who are able to play and repeat and increase their experience of this game. Do the mistakes even out? They might do, but even with the players playing their best, I imagine that game states will be forced upon them in which they have to make a decision which will alter the fate of the game and who wins and who loses. But sometimes your only action is to drop a spanner into the works because that feels better than doing nothing. It's that king-making agency that makes the person who does it feel awkward and the person who's the victim of it feels somewhat abused. And yes, it's inside the rules of the game. And yes, it's not really a transgression of the magic circle or any of those things. It's it's perfectly legal move, but it forces you to do something quite obnoxious. And the suffering will normally persist for many, 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 many minutes afterwards. Imagine that loss, for want of a better term, is just a result of the fact that someone bought share A instead of share B. They're equivalent value, near as damn it, but they bought a blue one instead of a green one. And now the blue company survived and the green one's dead. Bad luck, Mr. Green President. We're talking about a 90-minute game here as well. Sure, yeah. In the first 10 minutes, I am dead. Okay, what shall I do for the next 80 minutes? Well, we need you to be the robot, really, for one-fifth of the game. Are you okay with that? Sure, I guess. And I know people are going to say, oh, well, in 18xx, you can have the same thing where you're dead and you mess up in the initial pass setting of 1846. Fine, I don't disagree. But you can play for your best score. Maybe you go bankrupt and you get knocked out. At least you, if it's a game that allows individual bankruptcy, you go and make a cup of tea. Or if it's a game where the game ends, well, you can rack up and play a game of Time's Up afterwards. With this, this is the model where you have to be the robot. Not only are you not going to get a score, Joe, not only are you not going to cash out and go, oh, I got a rubbishy score, but I'll do better next time. You know that when you're nationalised, your score is going to be so rubbish that there's no point comparing it to future scores. It's helplessness. It's helplessness. That that's what losing this game is, because not only the game goes through its arc if you're set up to lose from the opener. I have very few options. I now only have bad options. I now have no options. So you slowly freeze, go into a permanent hibernation known as death as the game progressively gets less and less and less fun. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sounding quite colourful and angry here. Ooh, so angry. Let me explain why, okay? I have been on the rough edge of that once or twice. It hasn't bothered me so much when it's happened to me. But when it happens to another player or happens to another player worse, I can't help but empathise. And they're going, well, what can I do? I'm dead. Well, what can I do? I'm dead. But I can't afford a share in my company. And my company's already rubbish. So it's going to get nationalised. And I can't afford a share in your company. So I guess I'll pass. I guess I'll pass. I guess I'll pass. I'll repeat that for 35 minutes. And you can't... You can't yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're laughing like a hyena, <laughs> Joe. And that's fine, because you're the evil sod. But for me, I'm sitting there thinking, they've given up their evening to play this. And I've asked them to sit there. And I could have had the old nodding bird at the keyboard doing the old... <laughs> Homer's nodding bird that presses the button in the nuclear factory. <laughs> there was a living person with emotions behind that. I don't know, man. That just that's just horrible. Uh, we might as well have a, a sort of a better term, a jagged bottle on the table. And I say, hey, Joe. Yeah, mate. Yeah. I've decided you're having a bad time tonight. And I thrust it into your eye socket. You know, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in metaphor, of course, but we have a jagged bottle in the house ready for such a thing. It's a way of keeping Joe away with his emperor's finger. Now, are you going to commit to play this enough as a group to get that price exercise right and to make that thing you can play around with and try stuff with without 
cutting through your hand, you know, the mortar point cutting through your jugular. I don't hate the game. I really don't hate the game. I wish it wasn't so b- bloody brittle. That's my thing. And the motivations of the losers or the demotivation of the losers. We've seen players want to end the game. Do you think Tom was introducing a traitor mechanic into this? Like Dale pulled the traitor card and therefore after the phase shift, it's his objective to kill the game as soon as possible and go and sleep. And sometimes it doesn't work and we've got a whole whole another round and there's only two players in it now and everyone else they they don't have any shares in anything they get the glorious honor of saying pass 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 (laughs) i think one one issue that is not always completely clear who the victory is especially in those last couple of rounds in terms of the dividends being paid out and how everything's split across the table but is it the right thing to do in terms of your group sitting around the table when dale yet again has has bought into that green company and it is it's turned his face green and and he's sick of himself he's sick of the players around and he's you know, sick of the game too like what what do you do man what do you do it was quite funny actually because dale and his sickly green shares like he was in his uh, office with his oil heater dying out and it was close to midnight and he really was freezing cold as this game came to a close oh no but actually we still got another round the game doesn't end yet dale you'll have to sit there a little while longer rub your hands together dale i hear that warms them up while you're losing it does actually feel horrible while you're winning it feels like you're in this beautiful mountain lake swimming in the in the sun and while everyone else is complaining and bitter and jealous and in their pits of despair. I don't know. The, the fact that the, this game allows this to happen, to allow these emotions to pour out, I found quite humorous. I think that's because we have a good group. So is this a case of we had a good time and this is the game that happened to be there? We, you know, we've got quite a dark humor group where if someone is not doing very well, they'll often start with self-deprecating remarks and start a bit of banter going and then we'll, then we'll put the willies up them or whatever you want to do joe in your weird roman orgy and then it's done from your perspective though there are no winners even the winner is going to feel bad about winning and i think everything you say is valid criticism but i'd just like to challenge something for a moment because it sounds like a lot of your complaints for the game stem from enormous volumes of empathy for other players around the table moscow does not believe in tears craig and i just thought at this moment in the show in the same tradition as the television program this is your life i wanted to surprise you tonight craig and uh, bring out from the curtain our mutual friend and game group member dale sumler welcome to the show dale thank you how are you I'm good, thank you. All the better for not being actively playing Trans-Siberian Railroad right now. Indeed, very much. Craig, were you expecting Dale to make a surprise appearance this evening? Well, no, Joe. I'm obviously positively shocked. This didn't take any scheduling or effort at all. It just happens. <laughs> it just happens, Joe. It's not, it's not a conceit. Anyway, you are putting some negative thoughts into Dale's head about this game. He may have really enjoyed it. We don't know yet. We haven't asked that question. So don't influence our guest, Craig. Okay, I shall uh, remain stum. Okay, first off, Dale, I have to ask, because me and Craig discussed it earlier in the podcast, do you have any interesting facts to share about Sean Connery at all? I have no idea. 
Okay, no, I have no facts. No, it's all right. I thought you might have something. No. We would, we would, don't worry. <laughs> Just thought you might, might. I thought if I threw a surprise question at you, you might have something good to say. But don't no, worry. No, I have nothing. I have no idea what any facts about that person. So how long have you known Craig? And where did you meet? Uh, I have known Craig must be coming up to a year or two now. We met at Craig's train conference that he did in Baystoke, which was great fun. I had met him through our our friend, Sven. He introduced me through the game conference and it's just sort of bloomed from there. And ever since then, we've gathered and played games. And Were you not at that game of 1835 where I nearly tipped Sven over the table? Possible. Um, we have had, uh, there has been a few games before that conference that I played, but Sven has a lot of weird friends, so, uh, you know, you all blend in. Wow. Did you hear that? I blend into Sven's other weird <laughs> friends. Outrageous. And he, doesn't, and he doesn't even mean sexually. God. <laughs> Dale, I've got some more questions about Craig. If you were to describe Craig using only three words, well, which words would you choose? Now, Craig, don't take any offence to this, but short, hat, bearded. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I thought you might say something about his personality, but yeah, that is that is what Craig looks like. So I can't be rude about his personality. He's he's just like every just other his, gamer. Just his appearance. I want to be rude about his personality. <laughs> just the way he looks. The only memorable things. My my word! I got I got to have a shave and I get some get my shins broken. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know anything about the game before we introduced it to you? And not before you, not the first time. You you put a game out, and then I said, "Yeah, sounds interesting. It's a train game. I like play, playing train games." And nine times out of ten, I lose them, but I like playing them anyway. So, what what do you remember from our last few plays? Like, what what was your experience? I lost, and I lost badly at the beginning. How did that make you feel? Like I should not have played it at the start. <laughs> what you, you mean you shouldn't have started playing at just all shouldn't have started no i just should have just just said craig take my turn and that's it game over so did you not enjoy the game at all i i tried to be annoying but that even that didn't work trying to get in the way of people just didn't work mm-hmm. once you've done that first move and you've re- really ruined it you've got no gameplay and did you find it interesting at all like any of the mechanisms like was there anything that you, i think we, i switched I, off after i realized I'd, I'd got no way of doing anything i switched off on the game well to be fair dad you're only human right like, like <laughs> no, but, you know, it's a, it's a, that's a it's a typical response okay if there's nothing left in the game for you anymore mm-hmm. now we've got very different motivations right we're trying to unpack it for purposes of analysis and to try and not sound like fools when we talk on the podcast but if i was playing a game and this instance of the game was absolutely dead then i'm probably going to be thinking about something else and, and that's okay but unless the game gives me something to attain for like trying my best to get a, a certain score or to climb up the rankings if i am dead and after five minutes i am stone bonkers last and the only position i can ever be is stone bonkers last i'm not sure what a high quality of thought is really going to lend to that you know there's nothing you could do to change your position either especially in that game i found that even if you tried to team up with somebody you ain't going to help you're helping them a lot more get ahead than you are helping yourself get further forward you might be able to do something but it's doing nothing for yourself correct but i think you've played it three times in total i think yeah why did you come back? Because you should never say no to the game first time. At least do it three times. And then maybe four <laughs> yeah. times if you're really that stupid, which sometimes I can be. I've got another question here. This is a good one. If you could say anything directly through the medium of the train rush to Tom Russell, the designer, <laughs> what would you say? Don't do it again and burn them all. <laughs> Don't do it again. What, all of her games? Uh, being honest, I don't know all the games. I, I've not, I don't follow 
authors i tend to play games that friends have got or friends have recommended so to be honest i don't know what other games they've got if you lifted me some i might be able to say yeah okay maybe all of them but i can't think of any off the top of my head i'd have to go look them up um before you came on dale before you crept behind the the curtain craig was spilling out all of his rage for this game happy or bad bad rage bad rage not good rage not raves, rage. Rage, rage. I just want to ask you this question. Did you realise that during the game that Craig was feeling incredibly uncomfortable while you suffered in your losing position? Like, he was in absolute agony. Would it shock you to discover that his despair for this game is his directly down to your inability to play well? <laughs> what? Oh, that's your payback for calling me short-bearded and that. <laughs> <laughs> My response to that is, it would be a lie. Now, in all earnestness, did you not... Were you able to realise that I was definitely getting frustrated on your behalf? Not during the game. After it, yes, you commented today, and it's, hard, it's unfair on how you positioned myself. But it was all myself that did it. No one else put me in that position, really. It's the way I chose to play the game. I can't remember exactly how I did it, but I know I did it twice. Mm-hmm two different ways but both ways seem to have snookered me into a dead end at the beginning fair that probably softens my ire somewhat joe the fact that dale is left with a perspective that he largely did it to himself or put himself in a position where it could be done to him whereas i think you were worried that well i was framing it in the angle of the game does it to dale whereas to a certain extent dale did it to dale i think that ties back to our opacity thing though right it's all well and good saying oh well dale reckons he did it to himself or left himself open to that kind of abuse but if the game's opaque enough that you don't even realize you're doing that until it's far far too late and it's fragile enough that there's no opportunity to correct the course Dale, when did you realise you were in a losing position in those games we played? Definitely halfway through the game, just for the second turn, it was like, I've done a really bad, silly thing, and the second time I did the worst thing, I was like, this has happened again, hasn't it? This sucks. Would you play this game again? Uh, Sadly, I would, just because I like to see other ways of trying to play it, and I will try and figure it out one day, that there is a way to win, or a way to play the game better than I play it. But if I had to choose between this and another game, I'd choose another game. Before you go, Dale, do you have anything else you'd like to say to Craig? <laughs> any, any, I don't know, motivational words or... Ugly. He wants to say the word ugly. I have no comments. Okay, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problems. Thank you. I'm sorry, Joe, knocked you off your bloody balance with a question about Sean Connery <laughs> with sorry. no warning. Jesus Christ. Oh, whilst we're here, Dale, before we start, can you solve this differential equation? Thank you, Dale. You can now return from the hole from whence you came, and we can continue with the rest of the episode. We'll pull that curtain back and we'll pretend you were never there. That was Dale there, the tragedy of the commons. But it was interesting what he said about potentially returning to the game and trying something new. We started playing Trans-Siberian Railroad in February, the darkest of dark winters. We played a few games, and then we didn't come back to it until September. We played a few games and then didn't come back until November again. There seems to be these periods of let's try again, let's jump back into this icy pool of hate and then very quickly get to a point where actually we can't stomach this game much more or don't feel the drive to come back to it until maybe it kind of circles around in your head for a little while and you think actually there was something curious about this game there was there's something that we haven't quite puzzled out there's something interesting and like i said bizarre or weird about this game and we've 
have kept coming back to it. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. I think every time we've gone away from it, it's because we felt like we've burnt the group out on it. And it only took like two or three plays to burn them out. The frustration I have about coming back to it in sort of sporadic sets like this is I think that price setting exercise at the start, if we could get that right, so you didn't have a dead player floundering around in each instance of the game, then maybe a lot of the sort of negativity stuff could go, be minimised somewhat. And if you're coming back after a few months gap then you're going to have forgotten exactly how everything works and how everything ties together and your ability to iterate and go again go again go again to learn how to do it is limited because of the negative feelings that are generated when you're in the losing seats and i feel like i'm operating on it on an academic kind of this is a frog i'm going to dissect it to learn which bits of the frog do what, but I'm not actually deriving any pleasure directly from dissecting frogs. I don't dissect frogs for fun. You know, it's the act of learning that I'm enjoying, not necessarily the the actual intrinsic activity as recreation. And that's a shame. This is kind of tying into my conclusions really now. Go on then, you can leave the conclusions, I'm not precious. Or it might be a discussion. It's kind of conclusions or discussions. Concussions. Yeah, but that, that would be a good blend of those words. This is my concussion. If I were to compare this game to the medium of film, I'd say Trans-Siberian Railroad is not your Hollywood blockbuster movie. It does not follow conventions or predictable patterns. It would not play in all the theatres across the country. It does not have a likeable hero or a happy ending. For me, Irish Gage is that Hollywood movie. It's the 1994 remake of the Miracle on 34th Street. Trans-Siberian Railroad is like sitting down with your family at Christmas time and watching Salvador Dali's An Andalusian Dog, the film where a woman's eyes cut open within the first minute, and the main character, who has ants pouring from a hole in his hand, watches gleefully from a window while a boy gets run over by a car. There's something about this game that provokes uncertain emotions, negative emotions, which actually makes me feel quite fascinated by it. It makes me want to go back and play it again, to dig deeper into it. What I find wonderful in this game is that it's so horrid. It goes so far as to push players into horrendous positions while offering really interesting and clever mechanisms. It doesn't play it safe. For me, this is so close to being something I could deploy in my game group. There were elements of this that my group really, really enjoyed. There was elements of this I really, really enjoyed. For me, this game doesn't afford the players in it enough room to fail and to wrestle and to jostle. A single mistake early on and you've lost 90 minutes. I think the design has got lots of interesting parts in it, Joe. I really do. I love the implementation and nationalisation in theory. I love the manipulation of the speed of it and trying to make it eat companies that aren't yours. But that early stage piece is so, so, so bristle and reasonably difficult to master. I just wonder, is this a thing I want to lose myself in? No, it's not a system. But I think you need to have that level of dedication to get through those opening phases and understand the patterns and oh if so and so does this then maybe i should do that oh but that creates an opportunity for player c it's like um i was talking about the utility value of the sioux line and how groups that play it 
over and over and over will get more out of it than groups that just play it once as a curio because there's plenty there to discover. It's not a disposable thing that you can eat and then throw away the packaging. It demands more commitment from the player than that, but it doesn't promise the rewards of a system game like Age of Steam. Similar bag for me, but I'm just not sure I'm at a place in my life now where I've got space for that kind of thing that I need to keep trying to champion. Then that makes it a real hard push versus me just sticking Chicago Express on the table. The emotional price of the ticket to ride this train is quite high indeed. Yeah, I think my love for train games and how they work and the emotions they generate keep cube rails a genre i'm fascinated by and i quite like them as an exploration of ideas in an interactive form chicago express is always going to be there for an audience who wants a game that will play perfectly it might not necessarily be to everyone's taste but here's a cube rail game that's in my eyes flawless whereas tom's cube rail games allow us to see what chicago express could be when pushed in radically different directions. How would you compare this to Irish Gage then? Because that may be the game that's introduced many players to Tom Russell. A game where you have no choice but to swallow the frog, like Irish Gage. Sometimes you just have to do a thing to get money and you're still going to have less money than the leader vis-a-vis share auctions, but at least you'll have some money to force them to overpay for the next share or something along those lines. You know, it allows you to mess with them a bit. I've got to swallow the frog right now, even though all it's going to do is give me less money than everybody else. Quite often with this, it's not even just a case of least bad option, but it will give me an opportunity in a minute. It's... I'll do this option, it's terrible for me, and in a minute I'll have no options at all. I'm not sure it's a brick wall I want to keep slamming my head against. I think this is a feast of frogs, isn't it? Feast of frogs, I love that phrase, very good. If it was her intention when she was putting that ruler down on the the piece of paper and to serve up that platter of frogs, if that is her design intention, I think this game does what it sets out to do, but I don't think what it sets out to do creates a game most people want to play. This is an actual meal of frogs. This is actual misery, and people don't want to eat raw frogs, apart from me, and maybe a few others occasionally. There's a fetish for everything on the internet, Joe. I think I can sum up our whole situation with a metaphor. Would you allow me to? Yeah, go on. See the show out. Well, I know Tom and Mary Russell are big dinosaur fans. I think they're going on to create something called Dinosaur Gage. Maybe that's just a rumour. I can't work out if that's a rumour or a joke, but we'll find out in the fullness of time, I'm sure. Now, I talked about Trans-Siberian Railroad not being a Hollywood movie, but I will pick a Hollywood movie here to compare our feelings for the game. I'm going to choose Jurassic Park. Trans-Siberian Railroad, like the dinosaurs in the film, has the DNA taken from frog. I see Tom as the John Hammond character that's the the friendly, slightly nutty scientist with grand ambitions played by Richard Attenborough. I see myself maybe as the Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum who's enjoying the apparent randomness of this chaotic system. And I see you Craig as maybe Alan Grant Sam Neill, the dinosaur enthusiast but somewhat grumpy and sceptical and tells them to send the damn helicopters in to blow up the entire island at the end. I also see Dale, King of the Dead Green Shares, as that guy who gets eaten while sitting on the toilet. (laughs) My word. Every week. Every week there's toilet humour. Every week there's something to do with freaking willies and fingers. I can't. Jeez, swept. 
I've... <laughs> right. It's a good night from me. It's a good night from me. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks must go out to John Williams and Universal Pictures for generously allowing us to close this episode with the theme to Jurassic Park.